You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Lucky you, you have stumbled upon another music nerd edition with me, Oliver Altin, and my co-host, Lonzo Luconi. Lonzo's a pianist and educator and also runs the Costa Rica Piano Festival, which you can find more info about at CostaRicaPianoFestival.com. In this episode, Lonzo and I talk about music's role in society, uh, you know, music education, the difference between being a music student and a professional musician, um, and many and varied related topics. Lonzo and I like to get into it. Life is very confusing after college. How so? Well, because you you know you're trying to figure things out. How was it for you? Uh, it was good for me because I went right into teaching. I got a job teaching at Mount San Antonio College mm-hmm. Community College right away, and so I felt like I was still in the academic world for a little while. Okay. Um, and then eventually I stopped teaching there when my first child was born because scheduling and you know figuring out the family situation, and then it became. I don't know. You, when you're in school, you really care about so many details. I guess I stopped caring about so many details. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's true. Well, I guess you were one of the lucky ones because most people ride out of school trying to figure out what to do and you know what route to take in their careers. And sometimes you start school with a particular idea in mind about what you want to do and then things change along the way or you graduate and it turns out the world doesn't work like you thought it did. Mm-hmm. and then you have to adjust. Right. So what was that like for you when you made the transition to, like, normal life after school? Um, see, for me, it was confusing because I didn't really know what was going to happen. Like, what, like, I knew I liked teaching, so I knew I was going to be teaching, right? But as far as... And, of course, as an immigrant, for me, it's like, okay, like, I got I to gotta worry about that extra thing, right? It's like, how do I find a way to stay in this country, Right, because if you don't have a job, then you don't get to stay. Or I don't even well, know how that not, works. Not even that. Like you gotta, you gotta find a job that will sponsor your work visa. Oh, really? And then for musicians, this is very rare. I was mm. very lucky to find one, but um, even then, like it took me like a year, almost a year, to find a job that would sponsor my working visa. Hmm. And it was a long process. Yeah, as a you know, as a. I was born in the U.S., so I don't really know what it's like, but I hear stories that it's really, like, just a horrible nightmare to try to get, you know, green card, citizenship, all that stuff. Right, right. Even just, like, a regular, like, work permit, like, right out of school, you can get what's called an optional practical training or OPT. If that, if you don't get, like, a real job or, like, a full-time job after that that will sponsor you, then you got to go back. Mm. Or either you got to go back to your country or you got to go back to school. Right, I'll come back to school, I see. Right. <laughs> so a lot of people do that. Yeah. Uh, and there's, at least in the in the academic world of music, I don't know if this was your experience, but there's people that stay in school for right. seven, eight, nine, ten years. Right, yeah. Um, and for a lot sure. of it has to do with the visa situation, the immigrant status. Yeah, I felt like um, my schooling, I went to Cal State Fullerton, and I felt like my schooling prepared me very well musically. Like, mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like... I earned the title Master of Music. But I don't feel like I was prepared at all for like the 
business of music, <laughs> trying to make a living, dealing with like, there's so many skills that you need besides just musicianship to survive in this world. That's exactly what I meant by life being very confusing after college because you have this idea that you will go out and then you will perform and then you will keep doing what you were doing in college just like practicing like five mm. hours a day and doing your homework and reading and yeah. listening to music and sort of that routine uh, you have certain expectations that yeah some things are going to change but like you don't you don't really expect that now you got to do like taxes and stuff <laughs> yeah or you have to make a syllabus for the class you're lucky enough to teach you know right or yeah. even like right if you want to teach and maybe you want to start a school or some sort of business how do you do that they never really prepared you for that yeah for sure um but yeah well while being in school i i remember being like very focused on the details like you said of the academics and the things that seem to matter mostly to the musicians themselves but not necessarily the audience so or the parents of the students you're going to teach oh yeah even less yeah <laughs> But these details, I think they're important and they're absolutely necessary. You have to learn them and you have to understand why this is important. But what tends to make things, I guess, not so practical is when you take it on almost like as a, re as a religion. Like this is the only way. This is the way. There's a right and wrong. Right. And then you become like so critical of yourself and then others and because they don't perform the way that is in the books or the scholars you know um, yeah exactly then and you know if we think of it as a religion there are sects right there's like this school of thought or this school of thought that have a lot of followers but you know are opposed to each other there's all kinds of like little things like that in the music 100 percent yeah. yeah yeah and yeah. uh and I, they, they can get pretty aggressive with each other for people out there that don't think like academic people can get crazy like that it happens <laughs> yeah i mean same thing with everything politics and whatever i remember when i was in school there was this big deal about this french double dotting controversy you know <laughs> some french harpsichord music there's double dotted notes which is like a little right. bit extra longer and how do you double dot how do you interpret it interpret the double dots in french harpsichord music and like <laughs> it was a pretty serious debate yeah <laughs> these are also with the ornamentation of of baroque yeah. music yeah I mean, there's debates all the time like even trills you know it's like where do you start to trill right like well yeah i mean it's important though it's I mean, important to know it's important to analyze and then it's important to do the research so you can come up with your own own uh answer i guess of your your own ideas because mm -hmm. um, when bach wrote a trill over a note he meant something different than when you know mendelssohn writes it or whatever you know it's Maybe he did, or maybe he didn't. I mean, they were like very far apart in time, and the right. instruments evolved quite a bit. But I think ultimately the performance is for the audience, mm -hmm. and the audience doesn't care. They really, really don't. Right. Yeah. yeah. They what they care about is your honesty and your authenticity. Authenticity. On stage. Yeah. Exactly. When you see something real, as opposed to something that seems a little stale or something. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, I can respect those performers, those artists that know all the theory and all the did, did all the research, but then they make their own decisions and they make them in a way that just goes along with their their interest and their self-expression. 
right? So they don't care if they're going to be criticized by the opposing side of the right. scholars. Um, and so what, what makes a good, what makes, let's say, a progressive performance? How, how do you know when you go listen to a Beethoven sonata, you know, if it's an old conservative interpretation or a progressive interpretation or like whether it's legitimate or not or, and what all that stuff means? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I guess, I guess it's just including elements of the modern world. So how would somebody include a modern experience in their interpretation of a Beethoven piano sonata? It could be, for example, in the use of the pedal. It can be in the use of the tempo. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're on stage, there's got to be um, like a spontaneous element to it. And when you really, really understand the style and the composer and your instrument, you can get away with certain things, right? And artists do it all the time. And, you know, it's like Picasso said, first you have to learn the rules like a pro and, and then you can break them like an artist. Right. Or something like that, right? Yeah, it's a great quote, yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's like, no, it just, you can't just like jump up there on stage or anywhere uh, for that matter and just do whatever you want. It's like even even for me to have a valuable opinion about anything, you have to do all your research, all the work, and um, and then make up your mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're like an ambassador for the composer. A hundred percent. But but I I also defend the the value of live performance and what the performer can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Does for that sure. make sense? For sure. Yeah. And so I think that's why it could be dangerous to stay a little bit in that in that rigidity of of, of the thought of you know that tr- very very traditional way of performance. Right. Um, well, maybe you can think of it as like the letter of the law or the spirit of the law, right? Like if you see that Beethoven wrote a certain passage and you know what he means because you speak that language, then you can sort of translate it authentically. Right. But that, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Or maybe you keep the same notes, but maybe the emphasis is different, or maybe, you know. Right, or you, maybe you, you, you can try something. Like, sometimes just trying stuff out is fine, even if it doesn't work. Even, I think the value of it also comes from being daring in that way. It's like, I, I'm going to try it even if it doesn't work, and even yeah. if I'm going to get criticized, I'm going to do it anyways because I want to know what happens, because that's the way that I want to express myself at the moment. And those, those types of performances are exciting if you're in the audience. I mean, Super exciting. That's a memorable performance. Super you know? exciting. And, and, and you, you, um, you raise a good, a good point there. Um, sometimes some of the most exciting performances, at least that I've ever been to, would have never done well in a competition. Oh, yeah, because they're not perfect, right? Well, they're not in that standard right. that, of, of perfect. Because um, that's a whole other... Um, I guess, set of rules that you have to perform by right. if you want the approval of the judges. Yeah, like it's like you're in the Olympics or something. You have right, to just, it's, yeah. it's more like, yeah, because there's like point systems. And oh, so. really? There's like whole systems oh, with yeah, that? Yeah. See, I, know, I was never into competitions. I never did a competition as a you know, classical guitar student. Yeah, well, I guess also for classical guitar, it's not so popular to enter competitions probably there's not yeah. that many it's a pretty small world it's a yeah. small a smaller niche a smaller than piano yeah. Yeah, yeah well now we got to figure out how to perform still like we can't stop yeah. performing yeah there's no gigs 
I mean, it's almost impossible. To I mean, there's no right live. There's no in-person gigs. Right. Yeah. There there's are still like gigs. Live I mean, streams or whatever. Right. You you gotta you gotta find a way. And uh, there's there's tons of people now doing like online performances, utilizing all the virtual yeah. platforms available. Of course, it's not ideal. You don't get this. It's not the same experience. It's not the same for both the audience and the performer. Hey, but it's a it's a it's a new way to do it. And yeah, I wonder uh, I wonder how much because I haven't really been doing much of that lately. Um, most of my income doesn't from come from performing, so I don't really worry about it. But like, it's got to be tough, right? Yeah, I mean, it's you're basically you know asking for donations from people to watch your live streams. I mean, I don't really know how the, how it works. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's many ways to uh, to create income out of performances, even if they're virtual. Have you done any virtual performances in the last month or so? Mm, not really, but I've I've been putting together. Um, well, the festival now is going virtual. Oh, you're actually going to go ahead we're with gonna, festival. We're going to go virtual now. So wow, uh, you know, it's part of part of the innovation wave. Yeah, you know, we're we're going to ride it and see how it goes. Yeah. So maybe just remind our listeners which festival are we talking about? Costa Rica Piano Festival. Uh, and this yes. is the one that you run. That's the one that I've been running for the last seven years. It's awesome. So how's that going to work? Is it going to be, is there a, a fee to watch online or? We're going to make it free. Oh, We're gonna, okay. It's wow. going to be free to watch for our subscribers. You do have to subscribe to our our uh, mailing list. Okay. But then it's going to be free. So people can watch uh, master classes and cool. uh, the concerts. I will um, definitely check it out. What, what's the dates? What are the dates? The dates, um, July 13th to 18th. By 13th or 18th, 2020. Yeah. Okay, cool. 2020, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's happening. And of course, um, the students that are interested, advanced pianists that are interested in taking the lessons and master classes, we also have an improvisation workshop, uh, which is pretty cool. And for all the teachers out there, we'll also have a pedagogy webinar. Oh. So we've got quite, nice. a, quite a nice program. I'll definitely tune into that. So let's get back to interpretation. Sure. <laughs> I uh, I was just thinking about a guy named Yuri Kane. I don't know if you got you and I have talked about him or not. You know who Yuri Kane is? He's a pianist. He's a New York New York guy. I think you I think you've mentioned him before because it sounds familiar. Well, he he's famous for doing classical masterworks um, in just off ball kind of strange ways, like modernizing. For example, he's got a recording of the Goldberg Variations, mm-hmm. but each variation is in a totally different musical style. Mm. So there's Baroque style, but there's also like rock and jazz and crazy noise and like weird, weird things that you sort of dreamed up. It's really strange. That reminds me, I remember going to a concert once. This is while I was at, at Carnegie Mellon and um, a professor from, from NEC, from New England Conservatory in Boston, came to perform. And I guess he specialized more or still specializes more in like contemporary music. Um, but I remember he played a Haydn sonata. I'm never going to forget this performance because it was the wackiest shit I've ever seen. Wow. Playing a Haydn sonata, right? It's like uh-huh. you, you think Haydn and it's like kind of like formal, it's humorous, but like elegant, you know? Right. But this guy just did the most outrageous things. Like, So like, what's an example of something he did? So for example, so it was a C major sonata. Um, maybe we can play in... An excerpt later. Yeah, um, or we we can listen right now. Should we take a listen? Sure. All right. That one. 
Okay, so let's pause it right there for a second. This guy, um, his name is uh, Bruce Brubaker. Uh -huh. Starts this sonata and plays this entire introduction with the pedal down. The pedal down the whole the whole hold it without lifting it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, that's that's weird, but I can that might be cool. Like, it just doesn't sound like Haydn. Like you yeah. completely changed the style, right? Uh, and at the moment, because you'll have different chords ringing together at the same time. And well, it, everything pretty much. I mean, there's 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 some um, uh, harmony changes there. He just holds the pedal like it was Debussy, you know, something <laughs> like that, which. At the time, I remember like everyone being like, <gasps> looking at each other like, what is he doing? Like, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Who invited this guy? Who brought this guy? <laughs> uh, but it was not till later that I, that I at least appreciated his... That's uh, cool. I, I mean, so he snapped you courage. out of your expectations like from the get-go. And so it was... Oh, yeah. yeah and then cool. he played a bunch of other like modern stuff. I remember he played some, some Beatles. He Beatles, played, wow. He played some Beatles... Um, that's cool. Yeah, Beatles music I find to be very resilient to change. It like can really withstand a lot of uh, warping and. Well, I guess tweaking. that's one of the cool things about that type of music. I mean, it's so flexible. Right. Like Paul McCartney doesn't care if you change one chord and it still sounds good. Right. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's tons of jazz versions of Beatles tunes. Yeah. Also, yeah. I think of Brad Meldow's version of Blackbird, which is stunning. If you guys mm. have you ever heard Brad Meldow's version of Blackbird? I have not. Ah, oh, it's so cool. Should we listen? Yeah. Kinda Should curious. we listen? Yeah. Sure. Get the idea. It's pretty it's, cool, right? It's very close to the to the original. It's just yeah, a little sprinkles of colors here and there, and of course the the percussion. It's very right. nice. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it really honors the the original material, but and you know he takes off onto a solo a little bit longer too. Yeah, I was I was yeah. expecting to. But did you re did you know incidentally that on the original recording of that song by Paul McCartney, um, the percussion is simply a metronome. What I heard, maybe I'm I'm wrong. Oh, okay. Maybe, heard, maybe you know more than I do. Because may, maybe we can. Uh, it would be interesting to verify this. Um, but what I've heard is is actually not a metronome. It's his foot. Oh, really? Yeah. Doesn't it sound like a metronome to you? It though? sounds a hundred percent like a metronome. Oh, yeah. Okay. I heard it on a radio show. That that it was actually his foot. His foot, like maybe like a dress shoe on like a yeah, linoleum just, floor or something. Just, just 
It's so regular, though. Damn, that dude had some time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll have to f- we'll have to find out. Okay. Maybe our so maybe our listeners let's, can let's, let us know uh, what the right yeah. answer is. Uh, but yeah, so that's one of the cool things, I guess, and, and I guess it's an inherent element of pop music is that flexibility of it. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you keep the essence of it. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as that with what we call classical music or academic music, but I think it, sh- it shouldn't be so rigid either. That rigidity creates a problem and it's less people will be interested. Yeah. In a way, being too rigid is contrary to the original intent of the music. I mean, when pretty much any piece of music was written, I mean, it was by definition new because it had just been written. And so it wasn't written in the spirit of let's keep this tradition alive. It was a lot of times written in progressive spirit or trying to come up with a new way to to play music. Well, right. So aside from the very nature of it is self-expression is not to create a set of rules and then enforce them like a police like musical police right right exactly yeah uh that that's not the 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 intent at all of, of music it's just a uh, a tool of self-expression i think and one right. of the purest ones so that's why i think it should be more open and if it was more open in that way it would catch the interest of more people yeah maybe scholars and intellectuals have a very very high value of quality Mm-hmm. Right. And they want to preserve that. Then again, sometimes it gets to a point where it's so subjective that what you're defending doesn't make sense anymore. That's where we fall into the trap of there's a right and wrong. Well, I feel that it's like more like a like a spectrum, right? Right. <laughs> it's not like there's a right or wrong. I mean, if you go like too far to one side, it can definitely be wrong. Like you right. have to respect. I, it's I possible to be wrong for sure. <laughs> it is possible to be wrong, a hundred percent. Yeah. Right. But if you if you go if you go to the whole other side of the spectrum, where there's like a black or white, like this is the, like you, the example you were talking about, like with the double dotted. Oh notes, right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, or ornamentation. Right. Uh, baroque yeah. ornamentation and yeah. stuff like that. That you know, <laughs> people can have pretty heated debates on this and. Yeah. I think in the end, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, as long as it sounds good, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, ornamentation was supposed to be spontaneous anyways, right? Right, yeah, exactly. And with, like, we've talked about this before. Most of the time, the rules come after. The rules are a way of describing a practice that's already in existence. Mm-hmm. They're not, they don't come first and say, you have to use these rules before you can write anything. Right. I think that's absolutely right. The first composer that comes to mind is Debussy. Right, someone I mean, who just broke every single rule right, possible. And so the thing that gets me about this, <laughs> Debussy is obviously one of the great geniuses of the piano. I mean, of all music, I think. But these days, you know, you listen to Debussy and it just sounds nice. Oh, it's pretty. But you know, in the day, it was revolutionary. Absolutely. And so yeah. it's like it's like you want to get this across. You know, all my students when I, when we listen to this kind of music, it's like I want you to know that this is not normal when it comes out. This is new new music. Right, right. Um, but, you know... Yeah, talk about innovation there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he completely destroyed all the traditional structures of harmony and, and form. Yeah. And just did what he wanted and 
you know, he had his sources of inspiration and he has his own ideas and he did his research. He went to music school. He was very clear on what quality was. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's that pursuit of, of finding exactly what you want to say in the way that you want to say it. So I guess, I guess that's what won't let geniuses like Debussy and others compromise the quality, right? Because there, there, there's a pursuit of, 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 a, of a mission, right? Of a way of expression that only they will know if they achieved it. Right, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And some of his pieces are short, like his preludes or whatever. They're like little haikus almost, you know? Yeah, some of them are pretty short. But sometimes he's got, you know, bigger, longer forms and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and he but, likes yeah. to write, you know, collection of pieces like the image, right? And then he, he wrote two books of image or the stomp. or, You know, he has like these collections of shorter pieces, um, which are awesome. And they can be played separately or together. And yeah. that's the, 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 the beauty of it also is like at that point, it's like, you know, like a like a baroque suite you're not supposed to to play the movement separately right right yeah. you need to play them exactly how they were intended but when it comes to debussy with a collection like that like even in the romantic period if you play if you play uh, uh a collection of pieces like schumann you know like a um like carnival for example it's very rare that someone will just play like a couple of of movements or pieces right from a yeah. collection like that um, I mean, people occasionally will do it, but it's not. Yeah, very maybe common. a student will do that, or whatever. But it's but very common to see someone just play three preludes from from the WC. Yeah, you can just mix them up. Yeah, or one of the image, and then just move on with the program. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's where around I guess entering the 20th century when things started to open up a lot more. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think, okay, so there's Debussy in France and then Schoenberg in Germany mm-hmm. doing, in my mind, similar things. Schoenberg was more, you know, detailed about his approach to, you know, his new music or whatever. But, like, they both kind of threw out all the rules. <laughs> well, I, 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 in a way, I guess Schoenberg was following more of the mathematical rules. Right. He, and well, then he getting was, creative with the mathematics. Yeah, he was, he was getting German with it, which was his, you know, heritage. <laughs> and the French thing with yeah. Debussy is more like soft and mushy, you know. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like there's such great examples of their particular cultures and countries of origin in the way they approached, you know, revolutionizing music. Oh yeah. It's a great. Uh, it's a great yeah, and thing. then and then also the openness of, uh, and I guess also not just openness but the humility of. Uh, understanding that they need to know more, learn more, explore more, right, from other cultures, from other styles. So, um, I know Debussy was a huge fan of, like, Spanish music, for example. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I used to have a portrait of Debussy on my wall up here. I, oh, yeah? I just recently, I mean, we rearranged things in the studio here, and I took it down, but yeah. yeah. Another good example was uh, Bela Bartok. Oh, Bartok. Right? Um, Hungarian, right? Hungarian, yeah, and uh, how he he took a like very deep interest in folk music. I don't know too much about Bartok. So the folk music of Hungary, like his yep. native country, yeah. and the surrounding areas, yeah. Hmm. So you'll see a lot of irregular meters and bitonal pieces and By, so it's in two keys at the same time. Yeah, it will be in two keys at the same time. Is that, is that a thing with Hungarian folk music? Well, that, he he would take especially the rhythmic elements of the like gypsy music, 
and oh, gypsy music, right? Okay. And they just added his own twist. Interesting. Yeah, I, haven't, I, I don't know a lot about Bartok. I don't. I've never played any Bartok on the guitar. You know, it's not really a guitar. <laughs> no, not really a guitar. Um, um, it's very it can get very difficult. I have listened to his string quartets though, and they're like really intense. Yeah, it can they're get like, intense. It's like an onslaught. Listening um, <laughs> to Bartok. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, he's one of those composers where it's not very friendly to listen to in the f- on your first yeah first experience but then it starts making sense after you sort of sit down and like let the music guide you and take over mm. um it's very interesting and this i guess comes from that desire to explore and find tools and different ways to to say what you want to say yeah so Bartok, um, and we were talking about Debussy and Schoenberg and Bartok, who came a little bit later than Debussy and Schoenberg, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, this music, I mean, it's 100 years old, let's say, you know? And still, it's, it's still rough on, the, 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 on a lot of people's uh, ears. You know, we're, we're in the 21st century here, and most 20th century music is still, uh, you know, pretty out there for a lot of people. You know, I wonder if... Bartok and Schoenberg is ever going to sound normal for, like, the masses. You know what? I guess we hear this kind of music in movies, though. Like a tense scene or some, like, horror movie, something that's going on. That's well, the, the kind of music that... Yeah. Right, and I think that's also part of the, the contribution that this type of music gave to, to the future generations because um, the way that they treat dissonance and the way that they can emotionally charge a piece is very unique and I think that led the way of other composers to adapt it to visuals, right, mm. or, or or other other forms. Yeah, and and that's one of the one of the great gigs for a composer these days is you know film composer. Right, and then yeah, film score, film film music. Um, yeah, it's huge. Oh, and video game as well. Oh sure, yeah. Video games, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I mean, to be able to score, I remember when we interviewed um, Daniel Rojas. The mm-hmm. film composer. That was so cool to talk to him. I was thinking about him just the other day, you know, because I was watching... It's his birthday today. Oh, is it? Yeah. Nice. Happy yeah. birthday, Daniel. <laughs> if you're listening to this. I was... Because I was watching yeah. Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts uh-huh. on Netflix, Netflix, yeah. Yeah, with my kids, which is a really cool animated show that Daniel Rojas did the music for. And it's cool. Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw... I think the second season is coming out soon. It's, like, interesting. You know, there's different styles and stuff. It's kind of like a kid-friendly punk rock-ish post-apocalyptic <laughs> yeah, yeah. cartoon <laughs> which is fun yeah but i mean that that that's cool because that gives a composer a chance to really uh, stretch out and just try different things and be creative and you know not be stuck in any any rut right and and i feel like you you wouldn't be equipped for something like this if you didn't understand the language of music and, and you know where it came from and have the influences of mm-hmm. of uh you know other composers and different styles and yeah you got i mean you got to know speak it all. the language yeah another thing that um we might want to talk about as far as like progressive music and interpretation and stuff um is charles ives because mm-hmm. he started doing he would do like two three things at the same time different keys different things he's got one piece i forget what it's called but it's basically tries to um portray the experience of standing at a carnival or a fair with a parade going by. And so if you just listen to this music, different strains of music are like passing mm. by you and like 
coming up and then passing away like there's a parade going by and there's different sounds everywhere like out on the street it's a really cool way to i mean it's very complicated music but it's an interesting uh, way to compose a lot of composers will write not just based on their own knowledge but based on the reality around them like the sounds that are available to them at that time mm -hmm. for example beethoven never heard the sound of a plane taking off right yeah. Right. yeah, I think we talked about this last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, Different sonic world. Exactly. And uh, yeah, we were we were just hitting, sitting here recording, and there's planes and helicopters going by, and some neighbor using his power tools. You know. Yeah. Imagine, <laughs> you know, for someone in the like 1600s, 1700s, how dissonant, how disturbing this sound would be, right, for them. Uh, and then for us, I, I guess we have a, a, a different level of tolerance for dissonance in a way. For sure. Um, but then when it comes to music like Schremberg, for example, uh, I guess the tolerance changes, even though we can listen to sounds and, and you know, crazy things on the street. Still, Schoenberg right. kind of <laughs> yeah. um, creates that, that, that response um, in people. Yeah. Well, you know, the way I see it, music doesn't have to be pretty in order to be beautiful. Or good. For them. Or good, right. I mean, or that's that a better matter, way to put yeah. it. Yeah, because, I mean, I like pretty music, but I also like ugly music. <laughs> I guess uh, beauty is in the ear of the beholder. The ear of the beholder, yeah. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> um, but would you listen to Ligeti for a long time, like, uh, well, maybe. I mean, I like Ligeti, but, you know, sometimes you need a little break. Your ears need a little break. Right. Because I... You know, yeah. It's like food, right? It's like, I know, like Indian food can be like very, very... <laughs> really spicy. Spicy or very, like the condiments can be um, um, like kind of yeah. saturating the, the the food and... Right. Um, but it's, it's, it's an experience, right? It's, but yeah. I guess not everyone can eat like that if you're not used to it. Um, yeah. That's a great metaphor, though, because the more spicy food you eat, the more you can handle it and the more you like it. Then the more you can get the subtleties and not just get right. blown so away I by the heat. Right, so I guess it's a type of uh, training, right? And sometimes yeah. it's an unconscious training. It's just something, something that you grew up with, right. something that you can uh, appreciate different ways. And sometimes changing the flavors can change your perspective. And, right. And, um, but then we, we come back to the comfort food. <laughs> the comfort food, yeah. So, like, what, what, is, what is musical comfort food for you? Comfort food, I guess, or comfort music, ultimately is what, you, what is familiar. And that right. tends to be what you grew up with. So I guess that's al also subjective. Because I don't think a uh, kid from India would consider, like, chicken wings and beer as right. comfort food right? <laughs> right for them that would be as exotic as it gets right they, they wouldn't really <laughs> or right. who knows but yeah, yeah. this is every, everything is so globalized now that but um for yeah for me like chicken wings and beer is <laughs> so what's the musical equivalent of chicken wings and beer the, the chicken wings and beer i guess like beetles you know beetles yeah beetles beetles kind of feels like home to me and too. Yeah. and with um classical music what would it probably chopin oh chopin okay probably chopin something oh. that i feel like i won't say no to if it's playing yeah okay 
Um, Interesting. Yeah, for me, Chopin's a little exotic. For me, the musical comfort food is like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Really? Yeah, my dad was a huge Beethoven fan, mm. so we listened to that a lot. I mean, that like that just feels like, okay, here we go. Every my point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, my dad yeah. listened to it. Yeah, you grew up with it, you're familiar with it, and it just yeah. makes you feel comfortable. I yeah, think. it is really what you get used to. Oh, the other thing is Scott Joplin. There was a lot of Scott Joplin played at my house. My parents used to call it the running music. Me and my brother and sister were all little kids. We'd say, put on the running music, and they'd put on Scott <laughs> Joplin, and we'd all like run around like crazy and fall <laughs> down and laugh and stuff. Well, that's, I guess, also <laughs> part of the, the cakewalk. Right, the Gollywog's yeah. cakewalk. Great, my mom like used to play cake. that piece um, on the piano. But um, a cakewalk is actually a, a, a dance. Right. Did you know yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. But there's a um, Scott Joplin piece called The Gollywog's Cakewalk. Oh, no, no, no. No, it's Debussy. That's Debussy. It's Debussy, oh. yeah. Back to Debussy. <laughs> Got my wires crossed there. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> little, little, actually, they, were, they lived during the same time, but... Uh, it's kind of similar, isn't it? Isn't it a little bit ragtimey, The Gollywog's Cakewalk? It's supposed to be, yeah. Interesting. He also wrote a. Um, they what, did they ever meet each other? I wonder. Joplin and Debussy. I doubt. Did it. they live around the same time? I guess so. Yeah, they did. They did. Because Debussy died in 1918, I believe. Okay. My can memory. We, can we call failed. Joplin the American Debussy? Maybe <laughs> maybe that's going too far. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, I guess that's a little far-fetched. But a, little, a little much. Okay. <laughs> uh, certainly an innovator. Right. Joplin, for sure. Yeah. Well, he started playing around with uh, time. I mean, rag time. I mean, this is like, a, like an insult. It's, they're ragging the time. Right. They're like messing up. I guess, you know, we're talking about swing here, which eventually became you know, one of the pillars of jazz. Swing in the rhythm, swing in the eighth notes. But right. yeah. Right, right. Well, that, that's, I guess... Yeah, like we were talking about earlier, in the late 1800s and into the 1900s, things started opening up a lot. And styles like jazz and 12-tone, serialism, impressionistic, they came about. And, yeah. and then it just started branching out from there. Like now we got like endless styles of, of writing. It's like a and, diaspora kind of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's always interesting because early, like in the 20s and 30s, there were some kind of early attempts to bring jazz jazz musical vocabulary into uh you know the classical music tradition some more successful than others probably one of the most successful would be george gershwin right because he was a successful jazz composer and if you listen to a piece like rhapsody in blue or mm. an american in paris they're kind of like jazz symphonies in a way right or jazz right. concertos maybe but then sometimes you hear things and it's like, yeah, you're trying to throw jazz elements into a classical thing and it doesn't always work. Sometimes it just seems like... Well, if you, if you listen to certain composers that knew what they were doing or they were trying to innovate in their own sound, you can hear, for example, Beethoven sometimes trying to get that, that, that I guess, quote-unquote jazziness into his music. Jazz wasn't even invented formally yet. Huh. Although you can hear some elements sometimes in, in some of his sonatas. Like what kind of elements are you talking um, about? I guess it's in his, in his sonata, in his um, Opus 111. This is the last sonata. Okay. 
little bit. Yeah, that's cool. He's swinging the eighth notes, right? He's just getting... swinging and 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 you know utilizing that those appoggiaturas or I guess the non-harmonic tones and like right, on yeah. on the beats and um and that overall flow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For sure. Like I'd never heard that Beethoven piece before. Like if you had played that for me and told me it was somebody imitating Beethoven's style but throwing some jazz stuff in, you know, that I would have believed you. That's what it sounds right. like. So this is, this is, I believe, in 1820s. So he died in 1827. 1827. This, 1827. Right. So this, this was his last piano sonata. Right. I, I don't know exactly. That's so 200 years ago. Right. I don't know exactly uh, when this sonata was, was uh, written, but it's probably around the not earlier than 1820. Mm. I'll say between 1820 and 1825. That's my, my guess. Yeah, Beethoven um, really did like to push it. I mean, sometimes he sounds just sweet and beautiful, you know, but sometimes he really pushes the boundaries. Um, isn't there a story of when he wrote some string quartets for, who was it, Count Razumovsky? The Razumovsky Quartets, Opus 59. Am mm -hmm. I getting that right? Yeah, and uh, apparently Razumovsky asked him to fix some wrong notes. Actually, he didn't. He wasn't happy with the with the works that he commissioned because <laughs> he thought there were a bunch of wrong notes in them. But you know, today they don't sound like wrong notes, but they did to Count Razumovsky. Huh. <laughs> maybe, or maybe you know he he was known to for being super messy. So. Well, no, I just think the <laughs> so, way the way it's composed. It was, it no, no, I, I know. I know. It's just he uh, was a sloppy, uh, very very sloppy. If you see his manuscripts, I don't. I mean, I don't know yeah. how people were able to like accurately clean it up and. And print it and publish it because oh my god, yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's there's an example of already at least a seed of this type of rhythm of this type of feeling, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying that he invented it in any way, but here we have an example of elements that existed before most people thought yeah that's uh, interesting so yeah and that, i think that's why that's why again going back to falling into the trap of being too rigid or too um i guess scholarly in the way of in the way that 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 music should be performed right is uh yeah like ultimately like if what i think is that Music and and performances wouldn't change at all. Like everything and everyone would sound exactly the same if everyone truly followed everything exactly how it's supposed to be. Right. You know. Yeah. Then what's that would be a dull world. Right. So yeah. then it defeats the purpose, right? 
Yeah, and there is that there is that tendency. People, even in jazz, you know, jazz is you know over a hundred years old now, and so it's getting to the point where you know there are people that say, "No, you got to do it right." Like jazz is all about improvisation, but still, like there's a lot of people that'll tell you exactly mm-hmm. how you're supposed to play it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know what what's the solution to this. What do you think? Like, it, I mean, it's. I know there's got to be some sort of balance, right? Like, like we cannot compromise the quality, and we cannot skip the research and the and that that's, that that uh, academic part. We can we can't just like ignore it. We have right. to learn it. And yeah, we don't want to dumb down Bach. For exactly, example. not yeah. not not at all. We don't, exactly we don't we don't want to make it a like fast food music, right? right? It just doesn't. It's not that that type of music at all. Um, right. Like the Twitterization of music, <laughs> everything's you know, a certain amount of characters or less, certain amount, 140 notes or less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Oh man, and I hope so, I'm not being prescient when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, 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 what do you think? Like, what's well, you know what? I think that people should just do it the way seems best to them, and if that happens, then we're going to have a variety of people, you know. Like, you know, I was thinking about, we're, it's hard to forget about this. We're in the middle of a global pandemic right now. And I was thinking about leadership. Like, um, it's, it's no secret that I'm not a big fan of our current president. I don't think he has mm. much leadership, especially in this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but I think what we need is we need the medical professionals to tell us what the medical facts are. But we also need to consult economists, and other people about, you know, what's going to happen if we close down businesses for six months. So we shouldn't expect the doctors to think about the economy, and we shouldn't expect the economists to think about the medical uh, situation. We need them to be deep in their own field, and then our leader shall synthesize, our leader shall, (laughs) and then our leader should be able to synthesize all the information he's getting and come up with a solution. Well, I I guess at least facilitate the conversation between the, the sides. And in this case, we're talking about two sides, but there's much more than just two sides, right? Because you got to also listen to the people themselves because one thing is the theory and the other one is the practice, right? So how do you, how right. do you open up a productive space for conversation? The, the democratization of information like we have with you know, the internet and social media, I think it's, I mean, I think it's going to be hard to keep things in a box at this point it's inevitable it's so the change is inevitable yeah. and that that's why it's also so dangerous because then it the the label is going to stick to the classical music you know this label of being you know boring and stiff and all these things uh because in 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 a big part of it it is if you if you go to an opera or a orchestra concert there's a very very strict rule of behavior there and I'm not saying sure. like like it, it it just shouldn't or should be. I'm just saying that experience is not for everyone and not everyone enjoys it. And maybe people would enjoy that same music in other settings, but because it's so rigid, it's only right. limited to those spaces for the yeah. most part. I know like here in in in, uh, in the LA area, we have like uh, the Hollywood Bowl and people can go and like on the lawn and listen and chill, right? right. Uh, but those spacers are very rare. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I always actually prefer, when I'm listening to classical music or hearing a classical concert, I like an indoor venue. 
outdoors is great for a rock concert, but yeah. indoors you hear more of the quiet right, instruments because there's more uh, subtleties, but in the sense of allowing people to approach it in a more friendly setting, right? Like, I'm used to going to a concert and sitting there for two hours and just listening quietly. Like, I, I have no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. most people do. So what do you think is a, is a potential solution to... Well, I think we need to have more music in public schools. Mm. And so everybody grows up learning a little bit about the language of music, how to read music, how to play an instrument, at least a little bit. Um, and also just for people to like, if you want it, the other side of the spectrum, if you're playing Bach and you want to throw a little blues in, why not? You know, you're not damaging the music because it still exists in its pure form. Right, right. But, or, you know, throw a little, you know, throw some extra dissonance at the end of a, you know, Beethoven cadenza or whatever, you know. Right. So recently there was the song Old Town Road by Lil Nas, I think, is mm -hmm. who did it. Oh, yeah, I've heard this one. I got the horses in the back. Horse stock is attached. is mighty black. Got the boosters black and match. Riding on a horse. And it created all this controversy because it's country but it's also hip-hop and you know some of the country folks i mean it can, were saying, it can switch country. back and forth i mean I, I, like it, the intro is sounds pretty country yeah to me, but and then it, the, the people that are holding on to their thing don't want it to be something they don't want to enlarge the definition of what country music is you know yeah, the but even every genre has an evolution right like hip-hop in the 80s it's not the same as hip-hop now oh for sure yeah same with country music same with rock yeah so maybe it's just a new kind of fusion. So originally, fusion, like back in the 70s, was rock and jazz. You know, jazz fusion, it's rock and jazz. But so this is hip-hop and country fusion, which is, it seems like an unlikely pairing, but it's, I mean, it's, it's cool. I like the song. I mean, if it, if it works. And I think ultimately is the audience that's going to choose whether it actually works or not. Yeah. And interestingly, the, fa the fact that it was controversial means a lot of people listened to it. It generated a lot of attention. And so it became hugely popular. So yeah. controversy, like, kind of, kind of makes it legitimate in a way. I don't know about legitimate, but it certainly, uh, like, brings a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. I love these conversations, by the way, because, you know, I, I always learn a lot from talking to you. And I, just by saying my own opinions out loud, it gives me a chance to, you know, get in touch with them a little well, bit more. It's also good to balance these ideas with someone that right. understands them. At least makes you feel like you're not yeah. completely crazy or stupid. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I stay up late thinking about this kind of stuff, and I'm sure you do too, you know. But I guess what I'm thinking now is a, a good metaphor for what I would think the musical landscape does look like and should look like is a tapestry, where each thread is its own thing and it's pure, but when they weave together, they form, you know, a beautiful tapestry. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's not just the blend, it's like making sure each thread is its own thing, and then it can maintain itself while it blends with the rest of the threads. You've been listening to another Authenticity Show Music Nerd Edition with Alonzo Luconi and myself, Oliver Altine. Please remember to subscribe to the Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. Also, tell your friends about us. You're listening. If you're listening to the credits at the end, you know you're into it. So tell people about it. And that came with a please and a thank you.